You are listening to Jerome and me, Nathaniel, father and son. One a professional photographer, the other an avid cinema goer, discussing the movie industry. Okay, so you must have hit that button to listen to this podcast. It's uh, great that we've actually got some listeners for this new series that we're starting. Basically, it's myself, Photo Moments. I'm a professional photographer, and I'm joined by my son, Nathaniel. Say hello, Nathaniel. Hello, Nathaniel. Yeah, we are going to be looking at the movie industry, the film industry. We can't promise that we are experts in any way. In fact, I am definitely not. But this podcast has come about really because Nathaniel, who's my youngest son, is really very keen on the movie industry and is becoming something of a film buff. So what we're going to do over the course of this series is look at different themes. We're not necessarily going to look at one particular director or one particular actor, but we're going to look at themes, really, from the industry. So, Nathaniel, what have we chosen as the theme for this inaugural podcast? Well, by we've chosen, you mean you chose, and I didn't have an opinion on it, but um, it was visual storytelling. Visual storytelling, which you at, I actually chose that off that long list of um, themes, cinema themes that you sent me. Anyway, I thought it would be rather good for people to get to know us. So I've prepared a rapid fire question session. Yes, that I'm going to fire these questions at Nathaniel. Right, Nathaniel, you've got no thinking time. And your answers have got to be really, really succinct. Yeah, I don't want you to even justify or explain your answers. I find that difficult. You've just got to go straight from the heart, straight from the gut feeling. Okay. Okay. So these are really 10 rapid fire questions of your preferences within the cinema industry. Okay. 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 Are you ready for this? Do you want to take a glass, a quick drink from your glass of water? I think that would be a wise decision. Excellent stuff. We've got no nibbles on the table. It's just glasses of water. Okay. Are you ready for this? 10 questions starting now. Matt Damon or Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise. Judy Dench or Julie Walters? Judy Dench. Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan? Christopher Nolan. Music or lighting? Music. (laughs) I thought you'd say that. What's your preference, colour or black and white? Black and white. Really? Black and oh, white. I'll ask you about that after. So it does. No, no. Are you Marvel or DC? Marvel. <laughs> Factual or fictional? Both. You can't have both. It's got to be one or the other. Strict rules. Fictional. Fact- fictional films. Okay. Um, okay. So CGI or real life actors? Real life actors. Excellent. Good stuff. Big screen cinema without nibbles. Or small screen TV with nibbles. Big screen cinema without nibbles. Oh gosh, yeah. Okay, popcorn, salted, or toffee? Toffee. Toffee? Toffee. Oh, dear. I don't worry, your dentist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we might have learned just a little bit more about Nathaniel there. Yes, I think I've learned one or two things as well. Black and white, where did that come from? You don't watch black and white movies. No, but it's far more moody and interesting, and films have colour. But just because they have colour doesn't mean they're colourful. We've, we've never sat through a black and white film together, though, have we? No, but I thought black and white has connotations of, like, grittiness and realism. And as I said, I prefer real-life actors to CGI. So that was my thought process behind that. OK, fair enough. I can see that we will be sitting through um, a series of black and white films this autumn. 
let's go back to some of the great um, directors, Hitchcock mm. and the like. Okay. From that list that you gave me, I chose number 39 or whatever it was. A great long list. It was very long. It was a very long list. But I chose this theme um, of visual storytelling. I thought because I'm a pro professional photographer uh, that I might actually be able to understand what you're saying, perhaps even ask some relevant questions. Hopefully. Who knows? Okay. Give me some examples then from films that you've seen or we've been to see together over the last year or two. Some good examples of what um, visual storytelling is. Well, firstly, I'd say uh, the Bourne trilogy because the main character in that, played by Matt Damon, Jason Bourne, hardly speaks in the second of the three films, or well, in the second film and the third film. Um, he just walks around and does loads of things, but it's really quite obvious what he's up to and what his goals are, and there's a lot of action, so that requires visual storytelling, because you can't explain an action scene, you just watch it happen. I mean, another good example of visual storytelling would be Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which we saw last year. I think that it doesn't have enough story in it, but the what's actually in the film is very good, and uh, there's very little dialogue in that as well, but that's still a, a good film. So yeah. that that is a film of great sweeping vistas and great mm. panoramas, Big isn't scale. It? Actually very little dialogue, like you say. Indeed. Give me something more then of um, you know, the visual elements that, add to a story well definitely color or lack of it how does that apply to dunkirk well it's very gray and although it's right by the sea i mean so you'd think it'd be quite blue but it's not so it's just gray like an old war film would be which and it's essentially trying to be a war film like serving private ryan and that's another one by the beach by the sea and it was just grey showing how the soldiers there don't have any hope. And so I suppose when they get over to the other side of the um, English Channel... Um, he knows his history. Yeah. Well, I chose history. Um, I suppose there's more colour there. Yeah, it's just grey because they don't see a way out. And it's visual storytelling because they don't talk about how there's no hope. But you just see their expressions and... See, I was going to ask, so you mentioned expressions there. Mm. So visual storytelling isn't just about the large panoramas, no. the sort of wide-angle shots. Surely visual storytelling is also the expressions on people's faces. What, so Dunkirk is that I feel Dunkirk is more about the sort of... I agree. ...the, the big wide-angle shots, yeah. Mm -hmm. So give me some examples of films where um, it's actually the expressions on the faces of the actors that are helping to tell the story rather than the setting of the actors. Well, I suppose Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Darkest Hour, because they're, well, you know, they're kind of, well, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a spy uh, espionage kind of film, and you see, you know, the expressions on people's faces, whether they're the mole that's in the, um, I think it's the circus, that's the kind of government building, you don't know which one it is, and there's little dialogue in that as well. Um, and you have to rely on the subtlety of expressions and movements and uh, how they say things and things that are kind of obscured in the distance. And what was the other film I said? So you mean there might actually be hints within the scene that you're watching mm -hmm. of how the story is going to unfold? Yeah, I agree with that. So in that rapid-fire question, 
uh, session that we, we began with, you I'm still shocked that you said black and white, mm. not colour. Mm. Does using monochrome, black and white, does that add to a story or detract from the story? Because actually the, there's less being projected, if you think about it. Mm. No colour has been projected. There's yeah, actually true. less on screen. Does, so does using monochrome add or detract from the, the storytelling of the film? Well, perhaps because there's no colour, you can't do uh, certain things with the lighting and cinematography, so you have to rely on other elements of visual storytelling to tell a story. And there was far less technology back then, so you had to rely on you know what the actors do and what you can see, as opposed to music or um, that sort of thing, um, and special effects, because there weren't any back then. Um, so you have to have an actor that's that... That's not exactly show. true, though, is it? So King Kong, Godzilla, all of these great sort of Japanese monster films and the like um, from the 1920s, 1930s onwards, mm. they were special effects, weren't they? You could say that, yeah. And well, not as good as they are. Well, good, but they had to work with what they had, and that was usually, you know, you can't, you can't use big, booming music that we have now um, to show the fear um, that these monsters would create, so you have to show the, the people running away. Yeah, King Kong, though. People are still watching these, these well, sort we of B-movies and the like, aren't they? And it, perfectly, the story is, is really good, isn't it? You still get that tension. You still get the uh, thrilling aspects of the story, mm. even though it's actually filmed in black and white and perhaps sometimes it's just a man in a monkey suit. So we often hear, don't we, some people say, oh, that we've not enjoyed that movie because the actor was really wooden. Are some actors actually just through their acting better storytellers than others? Or does it really come down to uh, the screenplay that's been written and the way the movie's directed? What do you think? Well, um, I think it's rare nowadays that or nowadays, that you have a, a bad actor in a lead role. But I suppose if the director um, is trying to get an actor to act in a way that they can't, then that's bad directing as opposed to the acting. Um, but, I mean, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, the, a, a lot of that film is just Gary Oldman sitting in a chair looking forlorn and not thoughtative, thinkative. Pensive. Pensive, yeah, let's go with that. That was the word I was definitely thinking of. <laughs> a lot of thinkableness. Thinkableness, yeah. Um, and But I wouldn't say that's wooden, uh, wooden because it fits the source material. It's only wooden if you're supposed to be exciting. Do you think CGI will, or will it, or has it even caught up uh, being able to create a completely fictional 3D character and still have that character put over emotion? and its expression on the face, is CGI at that level at the moment, do you think? Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis with Caesar in Wolf of the Planet of the Apes and the Planet of the Apes trilogy and Gollum and uh, its motion capture. So basically, it is acting. CGI people are actors now, and the technology is really, really good. So I think it has caught up. And so you can have a film like... Planet of the Apes, and you can you can rely on the actors and their expressions as opposed to big CGI set pieces and action. 
I still don't understand the need for this, um, you know, actors dressing up in blue suits with ping pong balls on their elbows and knees or whatever. I still don't understand the need for that. If CGI can cover that 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 framework then with fur or with realistic skin or whatever, why why do we still need a man or a woman to dress up in that suit? Well, otherwise you don't have anything to work off of. Um, I mean, if I mean Andy Serkis would have done, you know, twenty years ago, he would have done the voiceover for Caesar, the ape. So why not have him go that extra step further and become Caesar? Um, and I think, I mean, prosthetics are very good now, but I think you can get more expression from CGI than you can putting a mask over someone's face. I still like the 1970s Planet of the Apes, though, so which was, um, you know, rubber masks over mm. people's faces. Yeah. No spoilers, of course. They weren't real monkeys. No. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, Real people. Real people. Now, I like lighting in a film. Uh, for me as a photographer... My job is all about light, and actually I would argue sometimes my job is more about the shadows mm. than the light. You can have all the light in the world, but if you don't have shadows, um, you lose that, that, that dimension within an, within an image. Um, so how important do you think the lighting is towards adding to the story of a film? Well, it can add to the mood of a scene, and also a mood of a character, because one character... I mean, what was the example or the film you were talking about? Um, Dick Tracy. Oh, yes. Different colours for different uh, characters, which showed their well, you know, their character and their personality, and also their relationship with the, the room, I suppose, whether they're an outsider in that room or whether they're in their zone or um, whether they're a villain or a, a good guy or the main character or an important character or a less important character. So I think it's very important in setting a mood for a scene or a character or the film as a whole and also the realism, you know, whether it's all exaggerated and goofy or whether it's dark and gritty. Do you think films have got darker in the last decade or two since the turn of the millennium perhaps? The big trend in cinema is more CGI and also more big franchises. And because there's loads of new franchises, they're having to think of different ways to do those franchises. And if they're doing things from the 70s, perhaps, or comic books or TV shows, originally they'll be light, and so they turn them into dark because it's different and it's new. Um, other than the Marvel films, almost everything at, at the moment is dark and gritty and more realistic but that doesn't necessarily mean it's better yeah that's a good point because it because can you have too much oppression within a film mm, definitely i mean the dc films they're just so boring and dark and miserable and um you know there's a joke that the cinematographer is called graham brown it's all gray and brown <laughs> there's no color at all and you can't enjoy it which you should enjoy a comic book film give me some names then give me some names of directors or screenwriters or actors that you think are particularly good at this whole visual storytelling element of a film well paul greengrass perhaps directed the second two born films and um 
uh, Captain Phillips, um, which is very good. And, you know, there's a lot of tense, long, drawn-out scenes in that. So you need visual storytelling there because you can't always have a scene dialogue all the way throughout. Um, I suppose Steven Spielberg is another good one with Serving Private Ryan. See, they're good films. They're visually very engaging, very entertaining. But but why are they sort of longer than average films? As in runtime? Yeah, yeah. Well, so Schindler's List, it just goes yeah. on and on and on. It's really, it really does. good. Black and white, excellent lighting, good cinematography, the way the, the scenes are put together. But it just goes on for perhaps an hour longer than maybe it could. True. Does that mean to say that uh, the films that are best visually in their storytelling, because they perhaps lack dialogue more than other films, mm. um, does does visual storytelling take longer than good storytelling with good dialogue. Um, I would say so because you could um, lazily, you know, give a backstory in one minute with dialogue or you could show it. And if it's a long backstory or long scene, you'd have to show it through, um, you know, visually like the Shawshank Redemption. That well, spoiler alert for the middle of the Shawshank Redemption. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! We ought to have some sort of special sounds that we ding if there's going to be a spoiler. Ding, ding! There we go. Ding. We've got it. Um, I can't remember the name of the character, but one of the institutionalized older inmates um, gets out, and um, rather than some character saying, "Oh, remember that person that went out of the prison and then commit suicide because they couldn't deal with being out of the prison." Instead, they show it in a five-minute scene, and you get a far more, a far more impact from that than just hearing about it because you, you see the struggle. Yeah, yeah. So here's a question that's just come to mind: um, subtitles. Yes. Or not just subtitles of people's dialogue. So if someone's talking in a, in a foreign language, they put the subtitles on. I can fully understand that. But often in films. Um, sort of, you get chapter markers, scene markers, where um, like the location. Yeah, so you you get a bit of information appearing in text on the screen, telling you something that has already happened that you need to know about, or mm. the location. If there's yeah. been a change of location, is that laziness in terms of visual storytelling? Well, Captain America: Civil War is a superhero film, and it was the first Marvel film to use location titles. But if you're a good director, you can just show a famous landmark or the, a flag or a stereotype or something like that to, rep, to show this is the country or the general city or the type of area it's in. You don't need a title card. Is that always the case, though? Say, so you're watching a film and suddenly the scene changes to Paris. Do we have to show the Eiffel Tower to show that we've moved to Paris? Doesn't that just become a little bit of a, a trope, a little bit sort mm. of tedious and boring? Quite possibly, yes. So in some occasions, is it then better just to put those words at the bottom of the screen saying Paris, mm. France? Yeah, I think you have to choose wisely when you want to do an establishing shot or or whether you just want to get on with it and uh, keep the pace flowing. If it's a slow film, maybe you can just show the Eiffel Tower or something like that. But if it's a, a faster film, maybe you just want to get on with it. 
or perhaps it just doesn't matter where it is. You just need to see what the characters are up to. Okay, so we've sort of hinted at some films that you think are particularly good at visual storytelling. What about the flip side of the coin? Uh, Give me some idea of films you've seen that are pretty pants when it comes to visual storytelling, just lazy perhaps. Well, that's far more difficult because um, is it more some films are good enough to be confident enough to do visual storytelling or is it just that films that aren't as good don't bother with it and perhaps that's why it's more difficult to pick out a certain one because I think it's more things like uh, title cards, you know, they're lazy with it Mm. um, and they don't do it properly because, you know, it's more, yeah, it's something that they've put on in place of visual storytelling, um, which is bad because I think it's better to show rather than to tell. So it's unlikely to have, you know, have an example of a, that's bad. It's just either they should have done it properly. So visual storytelling isn't always directly proportional to the budget of a film, would you agree? Yeah, I suppose, because Dunkirk, big budget, you know, famous director, famous actors, visual storytelling, but then a film that doesn't have a a big budget might also want to do visual storytelling because, well... Well, I'm thinking of Blair Witch Project. Mm, definitely, very, very definitely. small budget for yeah. a for a film that achieved cult status. Exactly, but actually, um, you know, almost all of the film is really good, strong visual storytelling. Mm, yeah, and that's not even with like a proper camera; it's found footage as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh no, you just mentioned the word camera there. You've Ooh. got this. Uh, you always have this B um, in your bonnet about shaky cam. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me your thoughts on shaky cam and how shaky cam is used to visually add to the story of a film. Well, basically, if you don't know what shaky cam, it's basically where you can't see what's going on because the cinematographer or the person holding the camera has had too much to drink. (laughs) And it's just waving the camera around willy-nilly. But, I mean, uh, shaky cam isn't always a bad thing. It's not like... Shaky cam is bad. It's shaky cam is a technique and it's used well in the Bourne films, for example, um, because it fits the source material and also the people editing it and the cameraman know where to point it and know that because it's shaky cam, they need to do good editing to show you what's going on. But people didn't realize that, so they just decided those films were successful. Let's do that, but they didn't actually know how to execute it. So shaky cam, just thinking of those sort of scenes within the Bourne trilogy, mm-hmm. shaky cam is is used, so it's a camera that's not on a tripod. It's on a, a cinematographer's shoulder yeah. or on some sort of apparatus attached, you know, to the chest or something. Yeah. And um, is, is shaky cam used in sort of high action scenes yes. where there's a, a lot of intimacy uh, between the actors and the film mm. crew in, in that yeah. particular scene. So it's not sort of standing back at a distance and no. zooming in, is it? It's it's the cinematographer's actually there within the action, so a tripod would get in the way. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I've also seen a video by The Closer Look on YouTube using 28 Days Later as an example of good shaky cam, where when they show the humans running away from the zombies, it's... 
it's basically normal camera work. But when they show the zombies, that it's not zombies. They have a a rage virus, and so they're so angry that they're zombies. So that's all shaky to show the intensity and of the anger that these zombies have for the humans. I see, I see. So I think yeah, we've sort of dipped in and out, haven't we? Uh, visual storytelling over the last twenty minutes or so. Um, what do you think, listener? Uh, are we hitting the right note here? Um, do you disagree with anything we've said? Um, do you want to just praise us to the hilt? We, we'd like to get some nice positive comments, of course. Yes, we would. please. <laughs> so uh, wherever you've come across this podcast, whether it's um, you know on the social media, on a website, or wherever you've come across it, perhaps you'd leave us a comment. But anyway, before we end the podcast, we're just going to have the little section at the end of each episode where uh, Nathaniel just sort of brings you, brings me up to date with some of the larger news items really happening within the cinema industry. Uh, what's happened in the last week or two, Nathaniel? Well, something I have a keen interest in is, well, firstly, Danny Boyle and you know his films and also the Bond films. And you may have heard that Danny Boyle was set to direct the 25th Bond film, um, the fifth Bond film with Danny Craig, um, Daniel Craig. But unfortunately, Danny Boyle has pulled out due to, uh, what, creative differences. So what are these creative differences, do we know? Well, Danny Boyle always likes to have um, his own... He likes to write the script, so perhaps they didn't like the script that he'd written. Um, And then I heard a rumour about an idea to kill off Bond. I think if, if Bond ever dies in a movie, uh, that, that, that's, that's a sort of sign that we're approaching the, the rapture or the apocalypse, isn't it? That's yes. end of world sort of exactly. news, isn't if, it? If you can kill James Bond, then, I mean, it's basically like this powerful titan that's going to destroy the world, you know, because you can't kill James Bond. All hope would be lost. Exactly, yeah. Okay. And also then uh, the Oscars. Um, mm. Some news just broken in the last couple of days, hasn't it, about um, the Oscars. Tell me about the, the news there with the awards at the Oscars. Well, as with the Danny Boyle news, something was set to happen and it isn't going to happen. There was this new uh, Oscar category called, um, I think it's uh, like best popular film. So not the most popular, but so a film like a superhero film like Black Panther or Mission Impossible Fallout, perhaps. Like a, a a film that you wouldn't usually expect to be in the Oscar categories and they choose the best popular film. But that's not going to happen after people, rightly, in my opinion, criticised it. Films, or all films, are worthy enough, if they're good enough, to be in, in any Oscar category. So them saying... This is your extra category for popular films is essentially saying we don't think big blockbusters are worthy and good enough to be in other categories. And I think that's a load of rubbish. I think if I think Mission Impossible Fallout is the best film of the year, it deserves to win Best Picture. It doesn't mean, you know, there's nothing stopping a film from being in another category. But this this. Popular, best popular film or most popular film, there's a popular film category. Yeah. That is so subjective. Isn't exactly. It? Wasn't this award only ever going to be a runner's up prize? Mm, exactly, yeah. Uh, I definitely agree because unless the best popular film wins the best picture um, Oscar as well, then it's basically saying, um, it's basically just trying to, what it's done 
is shown that the people who do the Oscars are separate from your average moviegoer that enjoys a blockbuster film. They're saying that blockbusters are inferior. So you're not sad to see it go? I am very happy to see it go because I disagree with the thought process behind having that. If you were going to add a category to the Oscars, um, is there something you would add? A, a new award, the the Nathaniel Award for whatever? What would you choose? Is, is there something missing from the awards, um, you know, the diversity of the awards? I'm not too sure. I mean, because there is a, a wide range, you know, they have best foreign documentary nowadays, so they have a, a category for most things. I mean... I don't know whether there is one for lighting, so I suppose I'd add yeah, that one on your behalf. sort of cinematography, isn't it, I suppose? But then you argue that they were different. I think cinematography is different from lighting, and perhaps that, that may be a subject for a future episode. A future episode, yeah. Well, oh, well thought out there, yes. Well, uh, actually, yeah, we ought to uh, be saying cheerio to any listeners that are left. Okay, so um, thanks for listening into this. We've enjoyed your company. We've enjoyed exploring around the table here in my little photo moment studio uh, this subject of visual storytelling. We've got dozens and dozens of themes that we can possibly look at in future episodes. Uh, I think we've enjoyed it enough to say that we'll be back again. Definitely. I hope you will tune in again. So, Nathaniel, give us some links of where people can get in touch with you to leave comments, and then I'll do the same after. Well, my Twitter handle um, is at N underscore Whittingham, and yours is Photo Moments. I am Photo Moments on Twitter. It'd be good to have you following. Mm -hmm. And then you're also Photo Moments on Instagram. Yeah, I am actually Jerome.PhotoMoments on Instagram. Somebody else had nicked the Photo Moments tag or username. I couldn't get it. But hey, thank goodness for that little full stop. Mm. Um, And then my Instagram is DJ Camel Reviews. Don't ask. I'll tell you another time. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. It's been good to share this time with you. Uh, We'll be back again probably the end of next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.